Happy New Year, Mr. Harper. Happy New Year to you, Ronnie. Now, obviously, uh, I was not gifted with the stamina to keep going on New Year's Eve, so went to bed and listened to the radio relatively early, but I imagine you were out partying as all good Scotsmen should be. Exactly. Um, I stick to... Uh, that's a great thing about being a Scottish stereotype, Andy. Yeah, I stick to my stereotypes. I take my coal and my shortbread round to other people's houses and nick their whiskey and get bloated and carry on for two or three days. Andy, I was in my bed by 10 o'clock... <laughs> I can't, I can't do I'm it proud anymore. Of you. <laughs> I just can't do it anymore. I I used to kind of stay up. Um, Cause see, the thing up in Scotland was we never used to start drinking till about ten o'clock at night. I mean, it was we didn't start supping. Man, my mum would do the cleaning and everything, and uh, she never brought old dust into a new house or the new year. And then we'd maybe just sup, and it'd be a couple of drams before the bells, and then. We, you know, it'd be a, a go for it. Uh, but, uh, but the the things now, I, I just, uh, you know, there's nothing really to watch in the telly, apart from the Hoot Nanny. Uh, but that's one after 12, and I can't handle after 12. No, that's right. I mean, I, I know Scotland's a much-changed place, but I read a couple of uh, people's comments about the New Year's Eve television, and they said, you know, we used to love it when it was uh, from Scotland. And I know Scotland isn't like it was, but, you know, it was nice to see Andy Stewart and Kenneth McKellar and and um, Moira Anderson and people <laughs> dancing. You know, it was once a year that you got in the feeling. It yeah. gave you a sense of occasion. I mean, you know, where's it gone? I don't know. Uh, I just remember... Uh, uh, Jimmy, uh, 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 Andy Stewart with uh, Donald Wears Your Trousers and all that, and he did that every year. The man made a career out of that one song. He's, but he all used to do impressions as well. And Moira Anderson, uh, you know, it's all that kind of Scottish, my heart's in the highlands, my heart is... And it did kind of land you into the new year kind of properly. But now, um, I, I, you know, I, if I'm honest... I kind of get fed up seeing celebrities tell me how much what they do or what their year's been like. You know, you get the, these these minor and major celebrities telling them what kind of year they've had and, and what they're looking forward to. I couldn't give a stuff what they're looking forward to. No, neither could I. I mean, I love Pulp, great band, Jarvis Cocker, terrific. And they were the star attraction in Edinburgh this year. But what happened to Jimmy Shand and his band? Yeah, well, Jimmy passed. Uh, he's away onto the the band in the sky. But, <laughs> he's up there. Uh, he's up there playing uh, playing the Gay Gordons and the, the Dashing White Sergeant, all that stuff, Andy. <laughs> the, the accordion music as well. Um, but anyway, I suppose we should really talk about uh, something that I... I I know you're always bothered. You're always checking out uh, who got the awards this year, the New Year's honours. And, of course, you were probably just checking to see if your name was on there for, for your you know, presenting uh, you know, services and all that malarkey. But I didn't see your name, Andy. Only you would never see my name, irrespective. Uh, but uh, that's another story. <laughs> I do get I – mean, I, I, I'll come clean and I, people know me, so they won't be surprised. I think the whole honour system is corrupt, obscene, and should not exist. Uh, but it does. And there are people, a lot of people, who do get awards. But this year, on the back of Liz Truss's resignation award, where she gave what an award to somebody every, for every four days she was prime minister, <laughs> that revealed what a nonsense. But the Sunday Times – uh, this week had a really good alternative 
alternative honours. And what he said was, these are people following the controversial XPM's list. These are people who we think should um, have got honours. Now, are you watching the post office yes. programme, oh. Mr Bates? Oh, it's magnificent. Because that's something else we must talk about. Oh, it's fantastic. It's great drama, it's but but the thing that, that we put people, you know, what this lot did to these poor people. I mean, been told you're on forty grand, and if you don't give us that money, we're going to see you. It is terrible, Andy. Absolutely obscene. Now, there's no other word to describe it. And virtually every comment I read by a television critic, etc., said, you must watch it, you will enjoy it, but at the same time, you will get furious. And they're so right. But Alan Bates, played beautifully, of course, by Toby oh, Jones, okay. was a man who, they say here, should have had an honour. But, of course, he was offered one for his campaigning, but he wouldn't take it as long as that awful woman in charge of the post office, yes. Paula Venels, kept hers. And now that, to me, is a man of principle. They say she should lose hers, uh, he should get one. And somebody else I want to single out, living up here as we do on the outskirts of Leeds, we see a lot about Kevin Sinfield, the former oh, rugby yeah. league player, now coach with England, and Rob Burrow, a wonderful little chap who's um, so, so, so poorly. And Sinfield has raised millions and millions and millions of pounds. I think it was a CBE he got. Yes. I mean, you know, compared to these people who've done absolutely nothing, and this list of people, uh, Dan Needler, who also got involved with the post office thing, but they say, for instance, Penny Lancaster, Rod Stewart's wife, who joined the police as a PCSO, you know, and they picked out these people who really had, you know, reason to be honoured, and yet we give it to fellow travellers who are useless. What I don't anyway, quite understand, more. yeah, what I don't understand that <laughs> is the upgrading of awards. It's happened before, but it's the first time I've noticed. I think Dame Shirley, who yeah, she's already a dame. I think she got hers upgraded. Now I don't know what that yes. means. Do you get an extra bin collection on, on a Tuesday or something like that, or do you get extra flights or something? But I didn't. Why do we have to upgrade already? If, if the award system's as good as they say, then surely a damehood is a damehood, and that's fine. Why do we have to upgrade them? The same with peerages. Uh, somebody gets a peerage, they're in the House of Lords, and the House of Lords, I am a bit of a fan still of the House of Lords, but the House of Lords, you know, uh, have a lot of people there who are highly qualified and do good work, but then somebody gets their peerage. Well, what's next? Yeah. You know? <laughs> no. Well, what's I, you know, um, I don't know. I think, um, I think the problem, Martin, and this, uh, again, people know me as well, I have a wee bit of an issue about the Empire bit of it as well. I have a wee bit of an issue, and I know that will rattle a few cages, but I'm not comfortable with harking back to the days of the Empire. That rankles a wee bit with me. But, uh, but, but you know, um, uh, some people got it and it was worth it, and some people got it uh, and uh, they could afford it, shall we say. Let's do it that way. You know, you, if, um, I think if you can maybe contribute to a couple of the parties... Yeah, you'll find the old honour system. Right. It'll, it'll come a wee bit handy for you. You know, that's all alleged, yeah, of I mean, course, Andy. Yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. I don't want to mention Tim Martin from Weatherspoons, for instance. No, no, no. Um, before, be, before we get more serious, Ronnie, I don't know. Um, you know, we were talking about presents, and you got a terrific response 
from Trevor Peer, our friend Trevor. Yes. I mean, I sat and I, I'm not surprised, but I sat and laughed at it. Do you want me to read his yeah, response? Go for it. Yeah, Mr. Peer. He yeah. said, I, I listened to you and Andy and the episode re Christmas presents and it made me chuckle. We used to go to Newcastle every holiday, six hours torture in the car <laughs> with my two sisters. My dad thought a good idea to put the presents on the roof rack every year. <laughs> no, not hard to guess what it was. Not the best idea when he strapped a climbing frame onto roof most of the paint chipped off down one side as we got there he got cleverer and would in the later years buy the presents up north a memorable one came when we strapped a guinea pig in his cage to the roof of the car for the journey back and decided that goldie would enjoy the view and place the grill facing the front of the car then of course he said by the time we reached Gateshead. Goldie, due to the cold, had passed away. Oh, he said, every time Dad braked, then Goldie would roll to the front of the cage. And then every time went up a hill or speeded up, Goldie would roll back to the back of the cage. Now... I mean, we shouldn't laugh because Goldie obviously had a very short and traumatic life. But it it took me back because my parents' uh, first new car was the really the, one of the very first minis. I can remember the registration because it's engraved on my mind. 7751PW. I'd have been about 14 or 15. And we used to go to Cornwall. My grandmother lived in South Wales, so we had to go there. All my dad's family were in Liverpool, so we went there. But my last memory was a bit like Trevor. I sat in the back of the car with my brother. We were both tall in this mini the basic basic mini so everything was on the roof rack and dad would put a plastic sheet over it and he used to like to drive always hopefully with the sun to the right or the left so he could keep looking to see to see if the stuff was still on the roof. He'd say to us, you boys have got a job. Andrew, you look to the right. Martin, you look to the left and make sure that the roof rack's still there and there'd be this polythene flapping. And, and you know, I mean, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. But seeing Trevor's uh, oh, uh, messes there just took me back. I mean, took me back 60 years to that agonising journey, you know, to, to Cornwall, looking all the time to see if everything on the roof was still there. Did you see the story, Andy, about Blackpool Tower this week? They thought Blackpool Tower was on fire uh, because they, there was this kind of orange thing and I think the, the fire services were cold and everything, but it was a piece of orange polythene covering that was just flapping in the wind. But it, it but it was, it was that idea of there's a chance, we've got a story breaking, we can cover it, and it, it ended up as nothing. You know what I was going to ask you as well uh, is I never asked you, I've never really talked to you about your teaching career and how you got into teaching and why you left teaching, uh, which may be a, a long story, but w w did you come from a teaching family, Andy? Well, my mother was um, a, 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 a head, a head teacher. She spent most of her time being a supply teacher. She was, I think, a pretty lethal combination, really, because she was a head teacher from South Wales and a Methodist. Uh, 
Now, you know, you, you, I think you can sort of get an idea of the sort of person she was, what she said went, and even if she didn't say it, it still went. And she always wanted me and my brother to be teachers. And, you know, naturally being rebellious and all the rest of it, never did, never considered it. I wanted to be a journalist, but I failed A-level English. And so they said, sorry, but the offer isn't still standing. So I went to work for the University of East Anglia in Norwich in the library. It was quite the worst job I've ever had because it was so dull. I didn't read books a lot, full of rather odd women cataloging books all the time and thought that was important and I didn't. But what it did do, Ronnie, was make me think, God, these students are having a good life. They look as though they're having a whale of a time. Now, I couldn't be a university student because I didn't have the right A-levels, but I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll go and be a teacher. So I did. I left the library, went and worked in the hotels in Cromer, and then went off to become a teacher. And that was literally how I became. I wanted the student life, and I thought I was missing out on something. Yeah, and I did it, and I taught for 27 years, only in two schools, a village school in Norfolk, which I loved and felt well, and then Abington on the outskirts of Cambridge, similarly. But after the 27 years or whatever, well, then that's when I pulled the plug because I'd been freelancing at Radio Cambridge, and I thought it's time to do something else. Were you were you a primary teacher then? Yes, I was, yeah. And when I started, there were quite a few men in it. I was at a village school, but it was quite a big one, and there were four male members of staff. I mean, when I finished at Abington, I was the only man, and I can't remember whether there were any men in any other schools either. I mean, that was the biggest change, yeah. We saw a lot of changes in the BBC. One point, it would be news. News is more important than entertainment. And then uh, a new gaffer would come in three years later, it's entertainment. Forget about the news, uh, cut down the news. In teaching, you must have been through that as well with different uh, sort of education ministers. Well, a huge, huge change, and particularly the school in Norfolk was run on regimented lines, pretty much like a secondary school, really. Uh, a headmaster who absolutely ruled the roost and everything was very formal. We even, like taught subjects. So he said to me, um, now, we, we, we're all experts. Uh, Mr. Davis, he does science. Mrs. Leverage, she does art. Um, now, what, what was your subjects at, at college? And I said, well, I did American studies and drama. Well, he nearly exploded because we had an American base that felt well. And this was a man who loathed the Americans with a vengeance. He'd stand up and tirades in school about the American education system. And the other thing was, he said, drama? We don't want any fairies here. And I, I said, well, I, I can't guarantee it, but I don't think I am. And, you know, a lot of people who did drama aren't necessarily. And it took a lot. I mean, I never did teach drama there because he didn't want it. But, but then, you know, you teach. So he said, well, you better do history then. Right. I did history. Did you? Were you and Andy went uh, when the, the the whole thing about not not the person or the individual? It was all about uh, exam results. Did you see the back at the start of that, or was it was it there? When no, you not there? really. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, living where we were and working where I did on the very much on the verge of the fence. Felt well was between sort of Thetford and Brandon, so right on the outskirts of Norfolk. It was like bandit country. Nobody ever came from the office in Norwich. In all the years I was there, nobody, we were completely left alone. Then I moved to Abington, which was very different, just on the outskirts of Cambridge, very middle, uh, you know, um, middle class, really, but very, very nice. Uh, but um, 
I got out in 1997, and in the first term that I got out, they had an Ofsted inspection, and I had never had an Ofsted inspection. So I'd done 27 years without an Ofsted, and I thought one of my biggest achievements was reading the rooms and getting out in, in July 97, and in October of 97, they had an Ofsted inspection. Gee was because the only th the, the sort of uh, preemptory to that was probably the school inspector. I can st I still remember we had yearly school inspector, and but we got we got to kind of trained ready for it. The t the this school inspector will walk in the suit and sit at the back of the class and just tell the teacher, Mrs. Shanklin, just carry on with your class, please. But we already knew what it was going to do because we'd rehearsed it the day before. But that was the yeah, only yeah. kind of inspectorate that was involved, and there was no league tables or any of that malarkey. You know, I think. Uh, there, there are things that were wrong. For instance, we knew nothing about dyslexia. We knew nothing about behavioural difficulties. You know, I mean, anybody who couldn't do those things was regarded as being, you know, bad or sad, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. And I wished I, I think back and I wish they'd been, I wish I'd known about dyslexia in particular because there were children I taught who must have suffered greatly because they were dyslexic. But at the same time, Ronnie, kids loved coming to school. We never had any children off for anything. You know, they loved it. And when the parents came to talk at the end of term or whenever it was, you know, the sort of parents meeting, they'd just say, are they happy? And you'd say, yeah, they love it. And they'd say, good. And off they go. Yeah. I mean, I can't say education was better, but it was different. And children were different. They behaved, they liked it, and teachers were held inside esteem as well. I mean, they must have had a shot when this bloke who had hair right down over his, you know, shoulders and that pitches up in this village in darkest Norfolk. But, you know, they were very we, accepting we, and everybody treated us with respect. Did you have long hair, Andy? Was it long oh, hair? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Really long. And then, then I had a perm and that really, that when Kevin Keegan turned, yes. and then for a long time I had blonde streaks. Um, I don't know why I did those things really, but but they all went out, and I got a whole selection of photos which would prove it, but the whole thing is, Ronnie, it was a different world then, and everybody was so accepting, and I, I loved it. I mean, right. I wanted, I didn't have any influence on my own two children apart from saying, if possible, don't be teachers. And that was it, because the job had changed. Let's talk about uh, Mr Bates versus the post office. Such an horrific story. I think, uh, you're quite right, you, you get angry watching it. I think the biggest thing for me was the fact that justice, if, if, if they hadn't stood up for themselves and eventually got some laws, the poor people would still be trying to pay back money. Some of them, more of them, would have gone into prison. And that's where I think, you know, dramas like this are crucial. I think it's marvellous that, you know, the lid has been lifted on this. And uh, it must be said that only a few still have had any sort of offer, and most of them haven't really received their money yet. Uh, I mean, there's a huge number who obviously we don't know anything about. But this is when drama and television and, and journalism as well, because there was a journalist called Nick Wallace who really latched oh, yeah. onto this. This is when this is when it's at its best, because otherwise we, we wouldn't have known. I find it staggering. They just blatantly lied. Oh. I find that difficult to comprehend, really. 
you shouldn't have to see these dramas because that kind of thing uh, shouldn't go on. Uh, but it but it shows the power of uh, highlighting injustice. The only thing about the programme that drives us mad is the adverts. I know you can record it, but we're desperate to see it live and see what happens next. And the adverts drive you mad. And Christine said, well, why didn't the BBC make something like this? And I think it's because they lack the bottle. Really? Uh, I, I, I really do. You're quite right now yeah. to think about it. They've done a lot of these dramas in the background. Yeah. Uh, also talking about television, Andy, how are you feeling about uh, game shows that are coming back, Andy? I thought you'd uh, run these past you. Wheel of Fortune's coming back, Andy, and it's going to be Graham Norton. You fancy that? Are you going to stay in you and uh, the lovely Christine of a Saturday night to watch Wheel of Fortune? Probably not. It won't. I mean, we'll be in on Saturday night, but um, probably not drawn to that. I mean, I don't think that the blankety blank, I mean, of, uh, of, of course, on which I starred, um, <laughs> I, I, I don't think, I, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't think blankety blank is as good the second time oh, around, no, third that, time around, really. You, you've got to, you've got to tell it. There'll be a few people who don't know you, you were starring, you were star on the um, blankety blank. Go on and tell everybody what happened, Andy. Well, it was when Les Dawson. Uh, was doing it, and um, I applied for a comp- for a program, which general knowledge program, which Bob Monkhouse then uh, hosted, and it really was popular. But they said to me, "Too many teachers apply for these sort of programs." But how do you fancy blankety blank? And I thought, well, okay, go on then. And yeah, went down to London with the family, and uh, two episodes were recorded at the same time. Les Dawson, absolutely. Wonderful, a lovely man in every respect. Um, yeah, and I got to the, I got to the, I, I won, and then I went for the head to head, and I wrongly chose Molly Sugden. There was somebody similar to Molly Sugden, who uh, an older woman who was always good, and I think I mistook it for uh, Molly Sugden, and I chose her in the head to head, and um, she didn't come up with it. So uh, apart from the checkbook and pen i got a sony walkman and five cassettes oh yeah get so in. big prize ronnie had i not chosen molly sugden was a washing machine get in oh yeah can you imagine the yeah. budget in those shows because uh, um they're, they're bringing back jeopardy uh that's going to be stephen fry i want them to bring back seeing as we've got um, this boy playing darts at 16-year-old who looks... I know what you're going to say. Bullseye needs to come Bullseye. back. Bullseye. Bullseye needs yeah. to come back. It, it's perfect right now. You see these crowds that are going to watch at the Alley Pally. It's fantastic. Sadly, it won't be Jim Bowen, who was a huge part of that programme, wasn't yes. he, really? It's just his delivery and the way he did it. We can all do the imitation and everything. But if they chose the right person, that would still be a really good programme. That was the one I would have chosen anyway. And you're right, now Now Luke Littler has suddenly put darts. When you hear people like Julie Etchingham on the news or Fiona <laughs> Bruce or somebody <laughs> telling you how um, this boy is doing well, I mean, Julie Etchingham on the back of the 10 o'clock news on ITV last night said, well, now we're all into darts. I said to Christine, that woman will be the last person on earth to play Absolutely. darts. Oh, I, I, lo- I love Julie. I love the Julie Etchingham. Uh, she's my, she's, I think she's my favourite. I like her. I like her because at the end of the thing, she takes, puts her glasses on and then shuts herself out of the computer. And she's already... Yes. By the end of the music, I can imagine her in the car park already out the door. Remember, remember those days, Andy, when you filed a news jingle and you could be in the car park at BBC Radio Gameshire and on your way home <laughs> by the end of the news jingle. Before the days when somebody wanted to come down to you 
and pick the program oh, apart afterwards and you thought, See, oh, no, just, it's been, it's gone. You've, you've just made my, my hands go sweaty. <laughs> and I, I didn't really bother about, you know, them coming down, but I used to dread that going, oh, because what happens, and you know as well, is you replay the three hours before they make the entrance into the, God, what have I done? What have, what have I said? What, have I, yeah. what did, did I play that wrong? Did I, and then it sometimes it's like, you know, um, uh, that was a good show. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. And you said, all right, fine. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a good show. Thank you very much. Last week, you were asking me, by the way, about working in, in other radio stations. And I, I forgot one story. I worked at BBC London. I got one shift at BBC London. Dave Roby, a great gaffer of mine, years ago. And he said, come and do an overnight shift. And I went on between two and six, Andy, two and six o'clock in the morning, right? It was just me and the security guard in uh, BBC London. And I tried to get calls. I did not get one call for four hours, Andy. You're supposed to play about eight to 10 songs an hour. I played, I must have played about 16 songs because nobody would phone in. So I can't, and I've never felt as abandoned and so, no, I wasn't scared. I just was lost. I was doing that first hour thinking, surely somebody's going to phone me. And it didn't happen. Did you ever do a phone in where nobody took part in it? I would say not nobody, but sometimes we in the very early days when we introduced a phone in after um, three hours of sport. So you got to five o'clock, you're absolutely knacked. And then you had to be at your best, really, for the last hour because it was a phone in. And in those very early days, you might get two, two callers. And I'm thinking, you know. After, you know, after the results, you think you've yeah. got to get the six o'clock in. And so there were um, decent standbys that somebody who was working on the programme could give a quick ring to, Ben McCauley or whoever it <laughs> yeah. was, would give a quick ring and say, come on, Andy, um, Andy Griffin, and there was um, A.D. Moles. It, 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 they usually called, but if they didn't, you'd say, come on, give us a call. Because you, you, you just thought, what am I going to say yeah. if we get... And, you know, no calls at all. So sometimes very thin. And then when they say a good response today, you think, phew, yes. Although you, uh, as I say, yeah, I had to be at my very best because that was when people would come on and say things that maybe they shouldn't say. Mm -hmm. So you, it was it was certainly not a case of sitting there. And I would think it was the same with you in Radio London. I knew Bob Harris quite well for a while. He lived near me in Norfolk. And he and it was the first time I'd ever learned that you there was a there was a delay yeah and then yeah. you had which I didn't know about you know and he said how there was a delay on obviously the line because in case people said things I mean did you have to operate that yeah BBC London didn't have a delay but uh, at talk radio there was an eight second delay and uh, in fact when I think about it I only had one instance on BBC local radio where the c word was used and it was just a, a lad taking the, the Mickey uh, but I'd I never had somebody swearing I had a couple of people kind of slightly slandering or libeling somebody and you quickly took that off uh, but with the with the dump button you could dump the caller but in the process of dumping you could have a shout back at them so if they shouted Ronnie Barber you're such a thing you could and you're a, as well and you dump it um, but I, it, it was when because the dump button when you dump somebody it has to build up again before you can dump somebody else. So if the next caller comes on See. and swears, you're done. You can't do anything. But I, I didn't get, I didn't get much swearing at all on any of the phone-ins. I used to go home and say to Christine, 
these listeners don't know the power they have mm. because odd times people said things about Reg Smart or Barry Fry, you know, and that it wasn't acceptable and you could say it. But, you know, and you could say, hang on a minute or whatever. But I said to Christine, they didn't really know because you can get an awful lot out in 10 or 15 seconds before the presenter has latched onto what you're talking about. And I was always glad that the people who called me, 99% of them were decent because they could easily come on and say so-and-so's an absolute. Oh, they could make a political statement. Yes. They could say awful things I, I, before I, you got rid of them. And they would say that phrase as well. Um, I went to Tesco's. Oh, I, I shouldn't really say that. I said, no, sorry. No, but others, and they would sometimes say other supermarkets are available. Said, Yo, thank you very much for doing that. But but you're right. There was that sense of responsibility. That, And again, yes. it goes back to the idea, Andy, of, of a radio station. Yeah, it's our standards and and everything, and uh, and we'll keep it to there. And and you never really f thought about. It. I I remember doing one uh, political debate in Peterborough, and I won't name the, the politician, but there was stuff flying about about this politician, and some of it was rumour, some of it was true. But uh, I asked one question of somebody in the uh, in the audience, and this man decided to really go for these rumours. And of course, it's out going out live. And there was no real security, Andy. I had to stop this bloke speaking because he was going to go for it. And, of course, then this politician started things about threatening to, to sue us and everything. It all got kind of uh, sorted out. But that liveness that we were doing all the time, you didn't. Oh. it became kind of second nature. And the other thing, I, I don't know about you, Andy, I used to listen all the time. I never shut off from listening to what the caller would say because that was when you were going to get into trouble, something would be said. You're absolutely right. There, there was one memorable occasion um, when I, when Paul was presenting on um, uh, on Saturday afternoon before I before I uh, succeeded him, and I just happened to go in and he'd asked me to do something or other, you know, for, you know, I was like the program assistant. So I went in and he just briefly said to me to do something or other. And whilst he said that in just a few seconds, somebody made a libelous accus um, accusation. Uh, I can't remember who it was about, but I think it was something to do with Cambridge United. But, um, you know, and, and, and we had, you know, quite a lot of work to do to sort of placate oh, everybody and yeah. apologise. And yet it wasn't his fault at all. It wasn't my fault. It was just at that one moment something had happened and the person squeezed in the accusation. Because like you, there are times I wanted to turn off when somebody was droning on about, you know, Barry Fry and strikers at Peterborough and all that. You just like to be thinking, blimey, I'm going home in half an hour and I wonder what we're going to have tonight to eat. But you couldn't. You no, couldn't. No, because if you did, that was when. Well, you, you and I would both ended up in court. Because, you know, the exactly. babies, even though we were kind of working for somebody, if we'd let it go off, um, and I used to say to the producers, you better listen here because you'll be with me. If I go to court for something, if you haven't been listening, if you've been talking to your mate who's come in for a chat and I get into trouble, you're, you're in the same uh, uh, police car as I am. Oh, no. yeah. I always had that note on the table. It was Mark Williamson's fault. <laughs> yes, I was always ready to do that. I, I would, I would have played Williamson all the way along. Uh, but listen, um, yes. we're running out of time here, my friend. Uh, is there anything else you've got in your mind that you want to get off? Mm, no, no, no. I can sit on it for another. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's plenty. There's uh, plenty to get me going, but you know, uh, I, next week. I want to hear more teaching stories as well, Andy. I want to hear mm. a bit more about that. 
and the head teacher that didn't like drama. That's going to do me. <laughs> uh, have a lovely weekend. Give my regards to the lovely Christine. Yes, and uh, best wishes to all of your family. And uh, you know, we'll we'll soldier on. And we'll see you next week, listeners.